What young people want fixed in their schools are long-standing inequities, things that have been wrong and unjust for a long time. There's going to be some real tensions when, when young people come back to schools and get policed in the ways that, that schools historically have. By asking kids to wait to go to the bathroom is going to feel so much more fraught in September. For a year, we let kids go to the bathroom whenever they wanted. I'm Kathleen Cushman for In Your Face. This generation of youth has been described as more fired up, more pissed off, more ready to be in your face to fix this system than we were five years ago. For my day job, I ask adolescents what advice they would give their teachers. And in this podcast, I ask educators what they're doing in response. We have a terrific episode coming up, but before we get into it, please click the subscribe button on iTunes or the follow button on Spotify. It helps the podcast a lot, and we have so many outstanding guests coming up. Today I'm talking with Justin Reich, who directs the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Inspired by games and simulations, it's a fascinating place, and it helps novice teachers practice and scaffold specific key teaching skills before they take them live, so to speak. In 2020, Harvard University Press published Justin Reich's book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. And he carries on a lively discourse on that topic in his Teach Lab podcast series. Our conversation took place just as the 2021 school year was coming to an end in an atmosphere of extreme disruption. Justin, welcome. It's great to have you here right now as students are thinking about their summer. As you know, I'm particularly interested in adolescents who didn't have effective academic experiences when their high schools shifted to remote. From your seat in the high-tech castle, do you see new and exciting online learning opportunities that these young people might actually want to try over the summer? What is your vision of what they might be doing that would both respect their situation and support their growth and development when they return to school? Yeah, that's a great question, Kathleen. So there are many, many young people that have really struggled with online school. When you go to a young person and say, you're supposed to learn this stuff and we're going to do some of it online, a lot of people really struggle with that. They struggle with the motivation. They struggle with the the structure, with the self-regulated learning that requires. But young people, adolescents, are actually really, really good at learning online when they find things that they're interested in and they're passionate about. They will tell you about how they watch YouTube videos to figure out new ways to do their hair or makeup or how to beat a level in a video game where they participate in fan fiction writing communities to, you know, write stories that they want to, you know, get out of their hearts and to be able to make new connections with people and all kinds of things. Young folks are, are great at learning, making media, connecting with others online. And part of our job as educators is to help young people do that and also to help them make connections from those informal learning experiences back into formal education and also pathways into career and tertiary education and all those kinds of things. You know, the the kid who's really good 
remixing music, making rap videos, those kinds of things. Those are all really great, marketable, useful skills. And part of the job of education systems is to figure out how do you help young people um, recognize when the kinds of informal learning that they're doing are really valuable, personally meaningful, but also marketable in ways. I couldn't agree with you more. And as youth return to their in-person schools, how can teachers call on this generation's informal learning experiences? not just to expand their students' college and career horizons, but also to enliven their academic curriculum, which may have languished during the pandemic era. There's probably a combination of relevant strategies. One is to maybe take some things that we're typically teaching and to figure out how we can integrate students' interests into those things. Where do things exist in our existing classes in which we could bring some of these ideas in? A second thing is to say, what are some parts of our existing curriculum that we could shrink and do away with to make more room for new kinds of things? You know, there's a lot that we teach in our schools just because we've taught it for a long time. Um, and uh, these, you know, moments of transition, you know, as Arundhati Roy says, the pandemic is a portal. Um, and we get to choose what we bring through the portal. And there actually might be a whole bunch of stuff we could leave behind. So there are lots of places in our schools to do these things. You know, some of the richest learning experiences that students have are actually not in the core curriculum schools, but out in the periphery, um, in the debate clubs and in the theaters and the musical groups and the bands and things like that. And all of those peripheral spaces are ripe for integrating these kinds of learning experiences into them as well. So I, I think there's a range of strategies that we can take that, you know, there's, there's sort of storm the barricades, change all the curriculum kinds of things. But even if we don't, you know, even if we're a little tired and don't have the energy for all that in the midst of a pandemic, there actually, when, we're, when we think about it creatively, there's lots of room in schools where we don't have to make online learning be, you know, sort of Zoom class over and over again for seven periods a day. There's a lot of spaces that we can be creative about what we're doing and really, you know, start from the place which is like asking young people, what do you engage with? What do you find compelling? What are some of the ways that you've learned most effectively and how do we help you build on those strengths rather than, okay, well, that's fine for out of school stuff, but we're going to do something really different in school. So many of the high school students that I connect with really just feel as if it was a completely lost year. Most of them have experienced social and emotional isolation. Many of them have suffered personal losses. The continuing assaults on people of color, the divisive aspects of the social media deluge, all this is making it pretty intense for young people. Can you tell us about some of the ways your MIT Teaching Systems Lab is helping teachers and school leaders get ready for the students who are going to show up in the fall? We've been trying to do a, a few things, and one of the projects is very much in line with the work that you've done for a long time. The first thing that we can do to support young people is to really listen to them. There's no educator in the United States that knows how to build schools back better after a pandemic because we've never done it. And there's exactly one generation of Americans who have been through schooling in a pandemic, and it's the young people who are in our classrooms right now. I mean, there's lots of things that happen in schools where adults rightly know more than young people do about them, but this is not one of them. 
this is a domain where the expertise exists, you know, solely in the hands of young people. So, so the first step for all that is to really listen to folks. We've been doing this project called Imagining September, where we um, gave teachers five questions to ask their students to reflect on this past year and think about the next one. What are the aspects of remote learning that you've appreciated the most and want to see carried forward? There's a lot of people who are really unhappy with remote learning, but you know, there's also some fraction of students who actually have liked it better. There are young people who are like, wow, I can control my own time and my own schedule. You know, if you're a young person of color who went to a school where you had really racist experiences and now you're home in the loving arms of your family every day, parts of this feel really better. That's not to diminish the the real hardships that lots of folks have, have suffered. But I think hearing from young people in response to this question, the schools have had to schedule all kinds of additional breaks and flexible time and longer lunches, and everybody likes this better. Young people, you know, especially those who went to schools where their bodies were really policed, they snack when they're hungry and they urinate when their bladders are full and they wear sweatshirts. And sometimes those sweatshirts have hoods attached to them and, and they still are capable of learning. They sit on comfortable seats instead of hard ones. I actually think there's going to be some real tensions when, when young people come back to schools and get policed in the ways that, that schools historically have. I, I have this intuition that young people and adults aren't going to understand why these tensions are so much stronger and why, you know, why, why asking kids to wait to go to the bathroom is going to feel so much more fraught in September. It's because for a year, we let kids go to the bathroom whenever they wanted. A second question we're asking is what was really hard about remote learning that you hope you never have to do again? What should we get rid of and leave behind? A third question we're asking, you know, which adults are asking themselves constantly is after the pandemic, what do you hope adults will do to make in-person school better for next year? And I will tell you that uh, most adults talking about this question are talking about things like learning loss and remediation and tutoring and stuff like that. And that is not what we hear young people talking about. What young people want fixed in their schools are long-standing inequities, things that have been wrong and unjust for a long time. Those are the kinds of things that they want people to address. The fact that they you know, got shortchanged on their unit on the French and Indian War in, in US history this year is not at the top of their list. What are some of the things that are on that list? You know, I think it varies from school to school and place to place, but it's what are some of the issues with our facilities that we've had that haven't been in good shape before? Uh, I, I mentioned before a lot of folks, you know, really appreciating kind of more time broken up more flexibly throughout the day. Again, so, some of the some of the things end up being particular to particular schools rather than universal. Um, but the, but asking young people what should happen next year, it just sounds so completely different from the policy conversations that you hear from national officials, from state officials, from, you know, reform groups and things like that. You know, so again, I think the thing to do is to ask young people these questions and take them seriously. We have teachers ask students, what do you feel like you missed out on or lost because of the pandemic this year? And again, people say the kinds of things that you're describing. They missed out on their friendships. There were these sort of signature events, you know, for any school that has a sort of tradition of some kind of field trip. Um, missing those field trips has been a big deal. You know, missing prom, missing homecoming. And young people want there to be time and space to sort of rebuild those relationships when people come back, to rebuild a sense of normal, rebuild community. 
But then we also say, you know, ask people to talk about what they're proud of. And I think a lot of young people feel like, well, this was a really hard year, but you know what? I got a lot of my schoolwork done and I was learning and I was making some progress. Two domains in which I think young people have built a lot of strengths that we should build on moving forward is in kind of independent, self-regulated learning. You know, young people have had to take care of their business in a way that uh, they perhaps never had before in schools. And then they just know way more about technology-mediated communication um, and, and learning online than they ever have before. And those are skills and assets that we as educators can build on Moving forward, that doesn't, you know, mean that for all the years ahead, we should do all of our learning online or that, you know, that kids should be as isolated as they are this year. Um, but it does mean that, that we can, you know, revisit some of these ideas. One of the things that I've heard from a number of school communities is, you know, let's take some of this flex time that we had built into the schedule this year and make, you know, maybe especially our 11th and 12th grades, maybe not be totally college-like, but a little bit more college-like. There's a few days a week that you come into class the whole time. Maybe there's a couple days a week um, that you come into class halftime and then you have more time to do your own work, you know, especially if you're in urban environments, do an internship, you know, have some of your learning happening in the city. There's a lot of ways that we know that we can use this moment to rethink schools in creative ways. A challenge right now in doing that is that teachers are really, really tired, you know, breaking point, fully exhausted from a year and a half of doing this tired. So somehow we need to kind of maintain an active imagination about how all the things that we've done this past year might make new futures possible while recognizing that like we're not going to put all those things into place by September because we're too tired. That's absolutely true. And I'm totally on board with what you're saying. But a whole lot of kids did not have at all any real connection with school in the past year and are going to go back into a probably pretty similar school culture, except stricter about some things because of all the craziness, I think we're going to lose a lot of students who just say, this is not worth it and won't go on to finish high school. So I wonder if it takes even a more radical shift in schools where most of the kids didn't participate, even in the most minimal ways. Could you imagine a way that your approach at the Teaching Systems Lab could help teachers and school leaders get ready for the students who show up in the fall and really to take into account the numbers of students who have disconnected from school? Yeah. You know, one of the things a whole bunch of districts are going to do is they're going to create their own remote learning academies, in part because there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy and in part because there's a lot of concern that young people won't get vaccines. Um, and so there's going to be some families who continue to choose a remote learning option. But there's also some percentage of kids. We don't know exactly what it is. You know, 10 percent might be a reasonable guess, a little bit higher in high schools, a little bit lower in elementary schools who actually like this form of learning better. For the really disconnected students, the, you know, the core strategy that schools have been going with is just figuring out how they strengthen their muscles around individual connections with students and families. So they've spent a lot more time, you know, knocking on families' doors in socially distant ways, trying to connect with people, connect with families, reaching out to kids, lots of teachers giving students their mobile phone number, texting with students, all those kinds of things, you know, recognizing that kind of relationships are the foundation of learning. And so if they're kids that have been disengaged because of their experience this year, the thing that's going to bring them back is probably not going to be like new programming or, you know, new this or that at school. It's going to be that they 
find that they have caring relationships with adults in school systems. Some of that has been done at the individual teacher level. There have been lots of schools that have done, I think, very sensible things like saying, we're going to take every single adult in this school, regardless of what your role is, and then we're going to take all the students we have, we're going to divide them into small clusters, and every single student is going to be assigned to an adult, and the adult is going to be responsible for checking in with them. You know, it's basically sort of bolstering advisory systems and those kinds of things. For our most alienated students, it will be efforts to build relationships with them that will probably be the most powerful tool in our arsenal of, of getting those kids back into schools. I'm deeply sympathetic with people who are excited about radical re-envisioning of schools. On the other hand, if you observe what happened over the past 14 months, educators on the one hand, on a dime, completely reinvented education systems across the country with no online experience at all in many, many places, completely rebuilt these systems, and they rebuilt them to be almost exactly like what had existed beforehand. This is the sort of paradox of pandemic education is that we did all this rebuilding, but in most places, like we still have seven 42 minute periods a day. You know, in a lot of secondary schools, it's like teachers sort of walked away from their lecterns in classrooms and they sat down in front of their home office webcams and they kept teaching the way they did before. And I don't think that's because teachers are lazy or because they can't come up with creative ideas or other things like that. I think it's because our education systems are enormously complex and they're meant to balance a wide variety of stakeholders and interests. And when you yank too far in one direction on one part of the system, lots of other parts of the systems go, wait, that's not as good for me. And so we get back to where we were before. So, you know, having just seen 14 months of sort of extraordinary conservatism and recognizing how absolutely exhausted teachers are right now, I don't think, you know, September 2021 is going to be the month in which we wake up to like radically new reinvented school systems. In, in fact, I think if there is sort of a lasting impact of change and reform that's based on these things, it's going to be something that unfolds over a number of years um, that as people sort of get their energy back, they go, oh, that thing that we were doing during the pandemic, like, why don't we keep doing that? Or the thing that we got rid of, why don't we, why don't we, it was gone for a while, why don't we get rid of it for good? That was never particularly good for our kids. Let's not bring that back. You know, I mean, we've definitely talked with some school communities who said, you know what we can do now? We can change. Every three weeks during this pandemic, there's been new roles. We've been in, we've been out, we've been hybrid, we've been online. We know how to change now. We're tired. But I think some of that fluency with change will come into play. I've been interviewing high school students for decades, but I've never seen their worlds change as dramatically as in the past two years. That's why my co-authors and I talked with dozens and dozens of today's youth for our new book, Fires in Our Lives, Advice for Teachers from Today's High School Students. Their voices and the urgent lessons they teach us just can't be overlooked. Thanks for spreading the word to the high school teachers you know. Now, let's return to our guest. As we think about the reopening of in-person schools, I'm curious about the continuing education of teachers and school leaders themselves. In your recent book, Failure to Disrupt, you tell about how you're tinkering with open, self-paced, online ways to provide professional development for teachers and school leaders together. 
Among other things, your approach at the Teaching Systems Lab seems to help educators who want to lead in really very transformative ways to learn together in a sort of a scaffolded learning circle on their own schedule. If I'm understanding correctly, it could be done remotely and not necessarily at the same time of day, but asynchronously. But it's a commitment to a group of people who are going to use the wonders of modern technology to figure out what other people elsewhere are trying and talk about it together and think, well, if I were to do that, or if we were to do it in our school, what might it look like? And ideas start to come in. And they also have access to exemplars from other countries, perhaps, or other schools in the United States, or even other schools in their own locale. And they tinker with new ideas, and it goes on, and there's a coach, and pretty soon people start feeling allegiance to their new ideas. That's a terrific description of what we're trying to do. We have one course that we're running right now called Becoming a More Equitable Educator, Mindsets and Practices, and it's running all summer. We think there's an awakening of schools and a recognition that our, you know, so many of us who go into education hope that our institutions are places of liberation, but all too often young people experience them as places of oppression, as places of cruelty and bigotry, and, and we can do better. And so, yeah, we create these online courses. They have a few components to them. As folks are trying to take on equity teaching practices, anti-racist teaching practices, there's some language that you can learn that can help you think about these issues. So we partnered with a fabulous educator, uh, Rich Milner from Vanderbilt, um, who helped create some of the framework of this course. And then we also think it really helps to see other places that are very intentionally wrestling with these issues. They're, you know, exemplars is a good term for them, and a lot of them are doing good things, but they're not doing perfect things. You know, there's no place to go where everyone has figured all these things out. I was once talking to a bunch of teachers in Massachusetts about a challenge of professional development in Alaska, which is some of these big school districts in Alaska are just like villages that are connected by float plane. And then a teacher in suburban Massachusetts said, you know, our schools might as well be connected by float planes for all that we actually interact with one another. Teachers don't get out of their buildings a lot. And don't, it's hard to, they're busy, it's hard to see other places. So we create these exemplars. And then we try to demonstrate, especially in this course, sort of specific actionable practices that people can, can bring back, not just sort of high level principles, but here are some things that you can try. And, and we don't want the, the courses that we build to feel like, okay, you're going to go learn about this stuff for six or eight weeks, and then you're equity certified and you're ready to do this stuff. That's not how this works. You're going to learn some stuff with us online, and then you're going to go back in your classroom and try some stuff, and then you'll learn some more stuff with us online, you go back and try some things. And ideally, that process of reflecting and trying and reflecting again is done, as you say, with a learning circle who are a bunch of folks, ideally in your school, who are doing the course roughly on the same pace with you. Teachers lead immensely complicated lives, and so it doesn't make sense to have all of their professional development happen in the same place in the same building synchronously. It makes sense to say, okay, go do some stuff on your own during your prep period, in the evenings, on the weekends, whenever you have it, when your kids are taking a test, do some of that independent work, but then also make some collaborative planning time with your colleagues um, to say, okay, you know, we've all been working this week on this particular dimension of equity teaching practices. What have we tried? What's working? What's not? How do we, how do we take this advice 
that the Teaching Systems Lab is trying to give to teachers all across the country and really localize it, make it make sense, you know, in our neighborhood in Harlem or in our town in rural Vermont or wherever else that you happen to be. So yeah, we're really excited about these approaches and it's not, and it's not about sort of mandating an online only approach to professional learning. You know, there's some schools in which teachers have absolutely no support to do this work and our online course is their lifeline and they're going to do it entirely online on their own. And then, you know, hopefully they'll be able to take these resources and bring them to, you know, other colleagues who are willing to join them, maybe as online resources, but, you know, everything that we make in our courses is openly licensed, can be, you know, reused and remixed in in-person kinds of settings. So we imagine our tools as being blended and hybridized in face-to-face -face learning in all kinds of ways. What you just described is very similar to the daydreams of high school students who would like to be connected in a smallish group around a thing that would make their lives much more interesting and work better, and they'd be learning more. If adolescents around the country and the world are trying things, which they are, and they're pretty aware of what each other is trying, to make some kind of pods for people who are interested in, for example, the racism in their community or the regulations on guns and how they got that way. All these things could work as well in high school if we really started to treat young adults as young adults. Perhaps you can expand that kind of methodology to inspire and light up the learning centers of our youth who are so, so tired of the kind of school that ignores them. I think it's very comparable between the teachers and the students. I think you're absolutely right. You know, and part of our theory of change is that if we want teachers to create richer, better learning environments for their students, one of the best ways we can inspire them to do that is to help create those rich learning environments for them. Part of what we want teachers to walk away from was like, oh, that was a great way of learning. I, I want my students to learn like that. It's a lot of steps. Um, you, you know, there's maybe some more direct ways of just giving teachers sort of curriculum or structures or other kinds of things to do that. Um, but I also think that when that when teachers are placed in learning environments that they find really compelling and powerful, they do start thinking about and figuring out how can I create these things for my students. Teachers have invited their colleagues as students to, to come in and join them. And, uh, and it's been great. I really liked your advice for educators who are considering tech-based products to boost their students' learning. You suggest that they ask themselves, pedagogically, is this attempting to fill pails or to kindle flames? Certainly the students that I've been interviewing are pretty clearly voting for the flames. And the questions that you're asking at the Teaching Systems Lab really connect with students themselves, which makes it so important that you're working with their teachers. I learned a lot from what I've read and listened to so far, and I'll continue to follow your work. Thank you so, so much for taking this time to spread the word. Thanks for having me, Kathleen. It's been really nice to get a chance to know you and your work better, and uh, I'm glad to be part of your conversation. Our in-your-face conversation follows up on the youth voices in the book Fires in Our Lives, Advice for Teachers from Today's High School Students by Kathleen Cushman, Christian Zankoff, and Megan Call Cummings. 
published by The New Press in spring 2021. Special thanks to the nonprofit What Kids Can Do at wkcd.org for its continuing support.